AFIO Now is presented by Northwest Financial Advisors, where our world revolves around you. Hello, everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with former senior intelligence officers and those who write about them. Today, I have a very special guest. His name is Nigel West. He is a former British member of parliament, a prolific author of books about intelligence. He speaks regularly in London, Moscow, and Washington, and he was voted the expert of experts by contributors to uh, The Observer. Nigel has several new books out, and we'll be talking about one of them today. It's called Hitler's Nest of Vipers, The Rise of the Obver. Nigel, welcome to AFIO Now. Thank you very much indeed. It's an honor and a, and a real genuine pleasure. I know all your guests say it's a pleasure to be with you. But it's, it's very nice to be cross-examined by somebody who knows the business. Nigel, this new book that you have out is about the German Abwehr. And I think for at least a few of our audience, it would probably be helpful for you just to take a couple of minutes and give them just a little bit of background on what the Abwehr was and what its role was in the first half of the 20th century. Well, I would contend that the Abwehr, which was the German military intelligence service, is probably the most misrepresented intelligence agency in history. This was an organization that came into a covert existence in about 1931 in defiance of the Versailles Treaty, which banned uh, the new Germany, the post-war Germany from the end of the, second, uh, end of the First World War, from having any kind of intelligence connect, uh, collection or analysis process. And the Abwehr was a covert intelligence branch and because it was completely attached to the army, the Abwehr was organized in a very unusual way. It was attached to individual military districts in Germany. So Germany was divided, like you know, most countries are divided, into military districts where uh, army units are based. And Germany was no different. And there were 25 uh, military districts, and there was an Abwehr office, as they were, clandestine intelligence collection and analysis organization for each of these particular branches of the military. So, and the military at that time was the Wehrmacht, and subsequently the Sicherheitsdienst, the Nazi Party intelligence agency, created a rival parallel organization, but they never really encroached into the military field because they simply didn't have the qualifications to do so. I mentioned that the Abwehr was misrepresented. When you read the classic authors of today, the historians like Max Hastings or, or even David Kahn, who wrote about Hitler's spies back in the 1960s, they only really had one side of the coin to look at. And they represented the Abwehr as a bunch of uh, narcissists, um, nepotists, uh, thieves, uh, avoiders of military duty, um, scoundrels and fabricators. And the, the truth was very different, but there wasn't any evidence to support that because the evidence has only recently come to light in terms of documentation. So really from the, the late 1940s until the late 1990s, it's simply not been possible to examine how the German intelligence organization was created, how it developed, 
how it operated overseas, and by and large, a pretty impressive job it did too. So my task, as I began to look at the documentation that had been declassified in the United States and the United Kingdom, was to reconstruct what we knew and when we knew it about this very remarkable organization, which was constructed in a way that was completely different to any other Western um, or Eastern, for that matter, intelligence agency. Nigel, describe to our audience, if you will, please, uh, what new source material came to light that caused you to write this book and the next one? Well, there were three particular sources of intelligence and in relation to the advert that was enormously helpful to me. I wrote a book initially about MI5 reports on a monthly basis to Winston Churchill. And that happened from 19, late 1942 to 1945. And whilst I was researching that particular issue, I came across a lot of MI5 reports. So this is British security service personnel who were based either in the UK or overseas, who debriefed and handled abwehr defectors or spent their time in the counterintelligence role studying the enemy. So first of all, I discovered that MI5's own archives had this wealth of material, mainly based on defectors you and I had never heard of, like Richard Verman, uh, codenamed Harlequin, quite well known by his codename, but his real identity had never been disclosed. He was a very senior Abwehr defector in 1941. So as early as that, MI5 was studying the Abwehr in great detail. Second uh, amount of information that, that uh, came to me was as a consequence of the Clinton administration legislation relating to records that had been retained at the end of the war that could have an impact on war crimes. And this, the custodian of this material was the CIA, and the CIA was given a deadline of declassifying and releasing this material to the National Archive. And bless them, the CIA did exactly as instructed by the administration, and millions of papers relating to the ABFA, uh, many of them nothing whatever to do with war crimes, but because they mentioned occasionally in one name in one report might be somebody who was suspected of war crimes, that entire document had to be declassified and released. So that was fabulous. And then the third area was, uh, again, MI5 post-war analysis, immediate post-war analysis of the interrogation of prisoners who had been captured after the end of the Second World War. So MI5 was very interested to sort out the loose ends, solve the mysteries of espionage that had been created by the Germans and the Axis during the Second World War. And so MI5 had a vast archive of material, mainly analysis by brilliant uh, academics and reflecting on the construction and the goals and the performance of the German Abwehr. And it gives a completely different idea to what hitherto historians had told us about the Abwehr. 
Nigel, off camera, you mentioned to me a very interesting source of material that I think our audience would also like to hear about was the German military historian who surrendered to the U.S. and brought some very interesting documentation with him. This was a, a, another book that I wrote. I was commissioned to write a book about German analysis and expectations and operations in the weeks and months prior to the D-Day landing. So lots of books have been written from the Allied point of view about deception and about the D-Day um, campaign in Normandy. But very few people had considered it from the other way around, from looking at what the Germans knew, how they knew it, and what they knew, and when they knew it, uh, about the D-Day landings. And so that was a book that I call Code Word Overlord. And in researching that, I discovered that there had been one particular major source who was a German academic who had been who had joined the, the Wehrmacht as an officer, and he eventually became a lieutenant colonel, and he was the historian who was charged with writing the Foreign Army's West daily uh, war diary. So he was based just outside Paris, and he had access to all the intelligence relating to the Allies, Allied intelligence operations, Allied expectations of during and after the D-Day landings. And this individual lived in Remagen. And it so happened that at the end of the war, he had managed to get back to his home. And when he encountered liberating American soldiers entering his town, he put on his uniform as Lieutenant Colonel, surrendered to the Americans and said, uh, I've got something interesting for you buried at the bottom of my garden. And this was the, the friendly here, West, that's enemy army's west analytical archive of everything that the germans knew on a daily basis in the weeks leading up to d-day this was absolutely invaluable the americans i'm afraid recognized the value of this material and shipped it straight back to the united states uh, where it wasn't seen for 50 years and i gather it's only just recently been declassified and therefore become available for historians like yourself so I got access to this material, and that was absolutely terrific. And that became the basis of my book, Code Word Overlord. And based on my experience with Code Word Overlord, when I saw how much material was being released in the United States and simultaneously in London relating to the ad there, I realized that this, in counterintelligence terms, was an extraordinary organization. Uh, they had virtually run, they had penetrated the French resistance movement and had virtually run the French resistance for a substantial part of the German occupation. They had completely penetrated uh, Allied intelligence networks in Holland uh, for much of the war. Very skillful manipulation of British, supposedly sophisticated British intelligence agencies. And in uh, Belgium, France and Germany and Switzerland had penetrated the Soviet system, uh, the GRU, Soviet Military Intelligence Networks, known as the Rote Capelle. And that was the code name that the German investigation, which was a joint Abwehr and Sikkerheinsdienst investigation of Soviet networks that spread across Western Europe just before and during the Second World War. And this material went on to become the foundation 
of all studies conducted both by the CIA and the British of GRU networks uh, in the post-war era. So all of this material was of enormous significance. But what was fascinating was that it gave a very different view of how the Germans created and, and addressed the problem of collecting intelligence against the Allies. Nigel, up until recently, the uh, conventional wisdom from historians such as uh, Sir Max Hastings has been that the Abwehr was a corrupt, incompetent bunch of amateurs trying to avoid uh, service on the Eastern Front. You seem to have a different point of view. How so? Well, it, I, I, I certainly do have a very different view, and that's based on a study uh, in particular of two organizations called the Kriegs organizations in Portugal uh, called COP and, and Spain, which was um, COS. And the Kriegs organization was larger than a station that you would recognize as an agency representation within diplomatic premises. Let me just give you a very small example. In Madrid, the Kriegs organization, which operated in parallel to the Abwehr station based at the embassy under diplomatic and consular cover, consisted of 300 German officers. Now, these were German officers who had strong Spanish roots and connections. They had either married into Spanish families, they all spoke Spanish fluently, they uh, had often fought in the, with the Condor uh, Legion during the Spanish Civil War, or they had been businessmen in Central and South America. So these 300 officers were very plugged into the Spanish way of life. And they represented the Kriegs organization, which was the local regional base for the Abwehr. And there was a similar um, KO in Portugal and another in Istanbul and another in Bucharest. And these were the front lines for collecting intelligence in neutral countries against the Allies and being able to deploy agents into the United States and the United Kingdom. Because if you look back at the geography of the Second World War, the only route from Berlin, if you were sending spies to the United States or the United Kingdom, was through Spain, uh, so you'd have to travel through Madrid, or Portugal, uh, where you'd have to get on a ship in Lisbon. So these KOs, were extraordinary organizations, very large, and the KO controlled dozens of substations called nests, which were spread across the countryside. And each of them had their own particular specialities. And the KOs became a hybrid of uh, the Abwehr. And sometimes they would operate in parallel with the Sikkerheimsdienst as well. But these KOs have never really been analyzed before in such detail. And they consisted of three branches. But the first branch was uh, good old fashioned espionage intelligence collection. The second was sabotage organization. So although they weren't necessarily conducting sabotage in the Iberian Peninsula, they certainly collected a lot of materiel, explosives and detonators and so on from the, from the allies 
so as to run false flag operations and to be able to deny that they had had any involvement. And then the third section was counter-espionage. And the counter-espionage and counter-intelligence branch was enormously successful, as I've described, uh, principally in, in, uh, in Switzerland, where they closed down the Rotor Dry, the GRU network. They ran investigations into all the communist networks in Germany itself, arrested and executed uh, most of those involved, actively ran and manipulated the French resistance organization. And uh, people don't realize when they see the movies and read the books about the terrific operations that were conducted behind enemy lines uh, and these clandestine organizations run ma uh, maintained by the Allies, they don't realize that there was a German involvement. The Germans knew all about these organizations and their penetration probably reached its heights in the Netherlands, where they actively took control of the British Special Operations Executive networks uh, in Holland. And at, at one stage, they were running 22 radio networks uh, against the British. And the British, for all of their sophistication, uh, running the double cross system, and being able to intercept uh, Enigma cipher machine communications, in spite of all of this sophistication, uh, the British were completely duped. And 43 British trained agents in Holland uh, perished uh, as a consequence of what the Germans called Operation North Pole. And we, at the end of the war, captured both the senior Abwehr officers who ran North Pole, North Pole operation, and interrogated them in England. And the reports, fascinating and completely contradict the, the view that hitherto historians have told us to believe. Nigel, ever since the disclosures of John Masterman's the double cross system, Allied intelligence services have boasted that they were able to capture every German spy sent into the UK during World War II. Is that claim really justified? No, it's not. Um, and, and I've been as guilty as anybody in really propagating the idea that the double-cross system was the bee's knees when it comes to counterintelligence and that the Allied objective of taking control of the uh, German intelligence machinery for intelligence collection had been accomplished. I now know that's not the case. And when you read my book, you'll see case after case of either German spies just before the Second World War or during the Second World War operating in the United Kingdom undetected. And uh, one in particular was a very remarkable man. He was Dutch, but he was a complete mercenary. And he visited the UK uh, on several occasions during the Second World War, was able to operate completely freely, never came under any kind of suspicion. And he was a dealer in exotic animals. Before the war, he had sold lions and tigers to, to circuses around the world. He would collect these animals in India and trade them around the world. And he had a very good trade in exotic pets. And this was his cover. And he traveled all over the world and he was never caught. At the end of the war, 
when the Allies looked at some of the documentation and realized that some people had slipped through the net, this gentleman included, uh, they went and arrested him. He was prosecuted in the Netherlands, but was acquitted of espionage. Well, once again, it's a fascinating story revealing a lot of very interesting uh, new material. The title of the book is Hitler's Nest of Vipers, The Rise of the Obver. I really want to thank both uh, Nigel West and Frontline Books for, once again, a very interesting story. Thank you, Jim. Thank you.